Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Hey, Tegan. Hey, Megan. How's it going? It's pretty good. We are back with another weekly episode of the podcast where I'm the host and you're the guest every time. (laughs) Yep, I love it. I'm so happy that you um, invited me back again this week because um, I'd done all this work for your podcast, so it would have really sucked if you didn't call me up and ask me to cover a case. Yeah, well, you know, you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to have you yet again. So I have a couple things to talk about before we dive into our podcast. Yeah, it's been an um, exciting week. First of all, we got a lot of um, comments about our math in the last episode. And just a disclaimer, uh, I haven't taken a math class a math class since I was 17. Um, and I've never had the need for it until this podcast right now. So don't come for me. Yeah, also, same. I was 18. But at the same time, like, that's like over five years ago. And of course, I'm not going to know what E stands for on a calculator, Laura, because I'm not an engineer, Laura. Yeah, (laughs) Laura. Did she tell you what it means? She did, but I can't remember. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) I had my defenses up. You were like, math, do not care. (laughs) But yeah, my sister, both of my younger sisters are, well, I have three younger sisters, but two of them are twins and they're in their second year and both of them are in engineering. So they have a very different brain than me. Uh, They're very logical and mathematic and scientific and I'm more like, arty, arts, I make earrings. I have a podcast. Yeah, no, it's funny because I feel like you and um, your older younger sister have like very similar brains and your younger sisters who are twins have like the same like engineer math brain yeah for sure I mean Janice is definitely better at math than me because she she's in like kinesiology and she's really into fitness and like training and health sciences um and for that you do have to do math I think I have no idea though yeah I'm probably just pulling this all out of my butt right now (laughs) Mm-hmm. In university, I was like, oh, I think like doing geology would be fun. And then I took one like introductory introduction level geology class and there was like math and equations, like not just math, but like equations. And I was like, I'm out. Um, I'm much better at writing a paper and arguing over a point than um, doing math. Yeah. Peace out. The other big thing we have to give a, a, a shout out to um, a listener, I guess. She's not one yet, but I'm not. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was funny. On Twitter, someone was like, man, I had an idea for a podcast and I Googled it and it already exists. Anyways, listen to them (laughs) at Destination Murder. So that was really funny. If you're listening to this, shout out to you. Um, I know. I think you tweeted that on actually Tegan's birthday. So that made her um, happy. (laughs) Yeah, I almost cried. I was very emotional. (laughs) <laughs> I, I turned 25 years old everything's downhill from here on out and so 
how it feels. <laughs> Just kidding. We're we're still uh, young whippersnappers, as my dad would say. <laughs> yeah, we're not that old yet. Um, we also got the puppy. Uh, since the last time we talked, um, our puppy Bentley came home, and she's so sweet. But right now, she's at the vet. She's getting her shots. So she's not here with us. Maybe she'll come home mid-podcast and I'll give her a sniff of the microphone. Yeah, she's so cute. Megan keeps sending me videos of her, and I literally just die every single time I watch them. I don't understand how she's so fluffy. She's so cute. She looks like she's teething a little bit. Um, Oh, yeah. So I'm not sure how much you're enjoying that, but... I don't mind it, but it's like, okay, Bentley, stop. I just want to cuddle. Bentley, stop. I just want to cuddle. And then you give her your toy, but she's so people motivated that she doesn't care about the toy. She just wants to play with you and chew you instead of the toy. Oh, no. So (laughs) that's a a fun little combination. Yeah, I know. But yeah, she's an Aussie doodle, um, but she has really interesting markings. So she's mainly black, but she also has like tan and white on her and she has like little brown uh eyebrows um and she's so adorable she actually has the markings of a bernie's mountain dog so i believe you are first this week tegan i am okay so this week i'm taking you to turkey um i have a couple sources this week so um the old faithful wikipedia um the guardian a New York Times article by Christina Asquith and the Borgen Project. When you get sources like this, I always know what type of story it's going to be. Like, I feel like this story is a mix of um, actually last week's episode, so the Mary Vincent episode, oh. um, and a mix of my South Africa case. So um, it's definitely interesting. There's There's parts that are similar to the Mary Vincent, as in, like, the, um, how, uh, her murder. gruesome? No, um, how, um, now I can't remember his name because I think it's not important to know his name. Um, but how her attempted murderer, um, was handled by the people. So. Okay. It's kind of, it's kind of uplifting in a little bit. It's, it's a very sad story, but the way that he is treated, um, in this case is I, the I find on it, top. yeah I find it enjoyable but before I wanted to jump into my case I just wanted to talk a little bit about femicide again <laughs> uh. um, so this is kind of like the connection to um, my South Africa case so femicide in Turkey is also on the rise um, the Turkish government has admitted to not keeping records of violence against women but the Turkish feminist group We Will Stop Femicide reported that 474 women were murdered in Turkey in 2019, mostly at the hands of relatives or partners. Um, these numbers are expect or were expected to skyrocket in 2020 due to the coronavirus lockdown, um, but I wasn't able to get any numbers for that, so I'm not sure what the um, death toll is. When you say femicide, is that specifically murder of women just because they're women? Yes, by, um, like, by men. By, uh, it's usually by either their relatives or their husbands. 
A study conducted by Sage Journals in 2009 reported that 42% of Turkish women between the ages of 15 and 60 experienced some form of physical or sexual abuse from their husband or partner. Um, Gender-based and domestic homicides are often uh, referred to as honor killings. Anti-female sentiments are deeply ingrained in Turkish culture. The president of Turkey and other members of Turkish government have made many comments degrading women. The usual rhetoric that women are not equal to men and that women without children are deficient. Which kind of is like, what? Um, The Turkish government practically encourages gender-based violence. The rise of um, female independence has led to what feminist scholars um, call a crisis of masculinity. So they claim that the reduced need for men to be breadwinners has caused them to feel displaced, and as a result, they often engage in physical, sexual, psychological, or economic abuse against their partners. Taking out the fact that their quote-unquote masculinity is taking a hit against women when women are just trying to make it better for themselves, it's just such dumb logic. Mm. I know. (laughs) Oh, it drives me so mad. (laughs) I feel ya. A political tension in Turkey also promotes gender-based violence, abuse, um, religious religious militarism is a rising state ideology in Turkey which promotes misogyny and makes women easier targets of abuse. In addition to these factors, the government's benign attitude towards Violence against women encourages male offenders and, by extension, femicide in Turkey. Female empowerment has led to women in Turkey achieving economic independence. This is also a huge step as it gives women the ability to exercise their rights and leave abusive relationships. This part is what um, I think is kind of insane. So only 34.2% of Turkish women work. Wow, that's really low. Yeah, which is the lowest percentage of employed women in the 35 industrialized countries wow yeah women are also more likely to and work. men are still mad that oh my god Sorry. Yeah. i know like it's like and they're still more likely to work the low-wage jobs and be employed in the informal sector with no social security yeah turkey is ranked 130th out of 149 countries in the economic the world economic forums 2018 global gender gap index so really not doing that great. <laughs> so I will be covering the case of Ashkanza Aslan. So Ashkana was born to a poor Turkish family. She was a first-year psycholo- psychology student at Cha University in Taurus. Um, she was born and raised in Mersin and wanted to study psychology, for which she had developed a strong passion for. Her parents were supportive of her, and with her mother returning to the workforce in order to fund her education to augment the um, 50% scholarship she had earned. Um, her father was a graphic designer, but he lacked permanent um, employment or at the time of her murder. Um, so while her mother had previously retired from a cargo company, um, she was planning to help out and work at a hotel in northern Cyprus during the summer to help with the fees. She had an elder sister who was studying opera and singing in Adnana. Ashgan 
was also described as an avid opera listener and reader. <laughs> I'm not like a huge opera fan, but um, I used to be in choir in high school and we would get tickets to go see the Vancouver Opera for their dress rehearsal. Um, so I felt so like cultured when I was like in high school because like, <laughs> like four or five times a year I'd go to the opera like and watch it and there'd be like maybe like 15, 20 other people, probably more than that, maybe like 50 to 100 people watching the show um, before it's opening night and it was always so cool. It's like, yeah, I, I got to go see the dress rehearsal of the Vancouver Opera. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Tegan's like, look at me, I'm cultured, I'm different, I'm yeah. Aquarius. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so on the day of the murder, Ashkan uh, was shopping, or went to a shopping center with her friend. Um, after eating, the woman took a minibus to return home. Ashkana was last seen by her friend when she got off at her stop leaving her alone on the minibus. So, sorry, how old is Ashkana? Um, I believe she was 19 or 20. Okay. Yeah, she had, um, she was her fir- a first year psychology student, so I think she was probably 18 or 19. Okay. Um, so they were on the minibus, they were the last ones on. Um, friend got off um, at her stop, and that was the last time she was seen. When Ashkana was, uh, did not return home after nightfall, she was reported missing. Meanwhile, the minibus driver stopped at a Gendarmerie checkpoint um, to ask for directions, and they're kind of like a military police kind of thing um, for directions, but instead of following directions, um, the driver diverted into a forest. The gender army became suspicious and stopped the vehicle to find smear as smears of blood, which the driver claimed had been caused by a fight between passengers. After a brief investigation, um, the suspect was released. After Ashkana was reported missing, the, the um, gender arm looked for the minibus again. It was captured with two. Um, it was captured with two other suspects. And Ashgana's hat, confirmed by her father, was found inside. The two suspects subsequently admitted to the murder, and the search for the third suspect began. So, according to news reports, the driver of the minibus attempted to rape Ashgana, but she resisted by using pepper spray. Following this, he stabbed her multiple times and beat her to death with an iron rod. He later returned to Taurus following the murder and asked for help from his father and a friend. The three men then, this is, it's going to get gruesome. The three men burnt Ashgana's body together in a forest and cut her hands off. As Ashgana had scratched um, the minibus driver's face, um, they feared that his DNA would be identified on her fingernails. So that's why they had cut them off. Later, the post-mortem examination revealed that she had not been raped, and DNA of the prime suspect was indeed found underneath her fingernails. The trio was then alleged to dispose of the burnt body into a creek near the village of Kamalan. Um, the body was discovered by the police on February 13th, 
and was transported to Taras State Hospital. The body and Ashgana's face was so badly burnt that they could not use it to identify her. Um, and her, the clothes found with the body were used as identification. I think it's crazy that like, they can use clothes, but her body was so badly burnt that, like, if, like, her facial features and all that kind of stuff wasn't recognizable, how does she still have clothes on her body? Yeah. Which doesn't make sense to me, but maybe, like, jewelry or something that doesn't burn as yeah, quickly maybe. as cloth or something. I also tried to look up these names and had a really hard time finding them. Um, so if I pronounce any of these wrong, I apologize. Um, so during the investigation, Ahmet Sufi Altadokin, the minibus driver, confessed that he had committed the murder and that his father, Nekmetin Altadokin, and his friend uh, Fatih Goke um, helped him. According to the newspaper, Ahmet displayed a notable calm demeanor while he was questioned and answered all questions in a cold-blooded manner. The perpetrator's father, who had assisted him, hailed from a wealthy family in Taurus and was at one time a jeweler. However, he had since gone bankrupt and started working with his son on a minibus, uh, as a minibus driver. He had, a previous record, he had previous records of smuggling. Ahmet's wife, who um, is the, um, the, the one who committed the crime, um, was married to him for five years prior to the murder and claimed that he had continuously inflicted violence on her and that he had forced her to withdraw her suit for divorce a few months before the incident as he allegedly threatened to kill her and their son. Oh, wow. This guy's not a nice person. No, clearly does not have any respect for women at all. Nope. Um, a friend of Oshkana's claimed that they had been afraid to use the minibuses in the area and that the drivers and some of the passengers had um, stared at them through mirrors and windows whenever they left the bus um, several times before the incident, which is kind of shitty that you don't feel comfortable getting onto like public transportation. Yeah, yeah, that really sucks, and it's probably one of their only options. I think I would rather be on a bus than, like, book an Uber with just one other person. Yeah, especially if you're feeling unsafe in the area, because more people should result in you not having to be as scared as being alone yeah. with someone else. This is the part that I enjoy in this case. So, according to Turkish law, um, the defendant in such cases must have a lawyer for criminal prosecution to begin. However, the 1,600 lawyers in the Bar Association of Mersin made a joint statement that none of them wanted to support such brutal savages in court and refused to assign a lawyer. Wow. Yeah. Okay, these defense lawyers? Top notch. <laughs> So the two lawyers that were present at the um, moment of questioning, um, one of them was a re relative to the suspect, and the other was um, previously uninformed of the incident. They both declined to support later, and this stalled the transfer of the suspect to the criminal prosecution. So um, on February 16th, Ahmet changed his testimony, saying that while he did commit the murder, he was under the influence of alcohol when he did 
so and did not intend to assault Ushgana or sexually or kill her. He mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. claimed that it was Ashgana who started the fight by attacking him while he tried to take her to the destination through a shorter way, and that he had gone to the back of the minibus in order to have a talk with her. What? <laughs> that makes no sense, buddy. No. No sense. Wait, also, wasn't he... Did he just say he was drunk, and isn't he the driver? Yeah. Okay. Arrest him for DUI, then. <laughs> yeah. And charge him for murder. Like, that's not a good excuse. You're just no. digging yourself a bigger hole. He reportedly claimed, um, with the hopes of getting a reduced sentence, that Ashgana had given him 100 Turkish liras to make him take the shortcut, but this claim was denied by her parents, who had stated that they had only given her 20 Turkish liras. Um, so, she, where did the extra 80 Turkish liras come from? Nobody knows. Because it's all made up. They don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> they don't exist. Um, the father of Ahmet uh, reportedly stated that he was unaware of the murder when his son came, and he said that he had been involved in a fight and wanted a bag, claiming that he was going to bring a chicken. Um, he then reportedly said that his son and his son's friend slit the throat of Ashgana before severing her hands. He claimed that his son wanted to keep her body in his father's house, but he had refused. So instead, they decided the best idea was to murder her body in a remote area and burn it. Um, which, um, after which he also burned Ashgana's blouse, scarf, books, and the strap of her bag. On February 20th, it was reported that the district attorney had finished collecting evidence and was awaiting the postmortem examinations um, from the Institute of Forensic Science in Ankara to take action. He would allegedly demand the harshest possible sentencing available under the Clause 3 of the Turkish Penal Code, claiming that the murder was a case of monstrous and torturous homicide, which would disqualify him from seeking parole. Um, the post-mortem examination was released on the 23rd, and the report stated that the body had been mostly burned, but that a number of the wounds from the stabbings and the fatal cuts, uh, but there were a number of wounds from stabbing and fatal cuts, especially at her neck. Signs of trauma resulting from impact of blunt objects with her head um, and bruises were found on her body. Her severed hands, which were found um later were also examined and traces of dna were found in the nails however no signs of rape were detected so i guess that he tried to rape her and she fought back and he killed her before he had the chance to rape her yeah or they just didn't find any evidence because her her body body was was burned burned. yeah i did i cut it out but i think that um i read that like her um genital area that was like severely burned so um, i'm not sure if they tried to burn that area more um the first hearing of the trial for her murder took place on june 12th the attorney demanded aggravated life imprisonment for the suspects the minibus driver made statements that 
conflicted with his prior testimony, saying his father had learned about the murders at the last minute and that his friend had tried to rape Ashkana. The trial was then postponed to September 9th. Meanwhile, the Bar of Mershon um, brought the cases of seven people suspected of being involved in the murder of being accomplices, including the aunt of Ahmet to the Supreme Court, demanding that the trial of these suspects who were previously dismissed of the charges. Um, so when the trial finally happened, um, the attorneys, um, specifically called for the court to refrain from reducing the sentencing, um, because of the outrage the case had caused in society. The defendants were not brought to the court for the hearing, but joined through voice and video communication systems. The minibus driver claimed that he had seen his friend, uh, Goke, tightening his belt and pulling up the zipper of his pants after descending from the back of the vehicle, and he knew that his friend had attempted to sexually assault, although he did not know whether he had succeeded. Goke denied these accusations during the same hearing. A lawyer for Ashkana's family said that they did not agree with the attorney's conclusion that no rape took place as um, traces of DNA had been found under her nails and her genital area was badly burned during the intentional to pre- or were badly burned intentionally to prevent detection of rape. All three defendants denied raping or being involved in the rape of Ashkana. So the case was in court for about two months. So on December 3rd, after the three defendants were given aggravated life sentences without the possibility of parole, the rationale for the minibus driver, Ahmet, was murder with monstrous instinct and torture, murder with the motive of hiding a crime and evading capture, murder due to frustration caused by the inability to commit another crime, attempted attempt at sexual assault and deprivation of personal liberty with sexual motives. He was given a prison sentence of an additional 27 years due to the other charges. His friend Fateh and was sentenced to an additional 24 years due to various other charges. Um, so Turkey like actually went insane over this case. So there was like um, protests and um, sit-ins and walkouts and all kinds of stuff. Um, I when I was researching it, there was almost more information about the protests and everything that had happened after words than actually like information about her murder yeah it's really sad that like society as a whole recognizes it's wrong and wants the change but then you were talking about how like misogynistic the actual government is and the people in power are that that change is not going to happen when society is like this has to stop um this is horrible, we need change, and the government's like, what? Sorry? Nope. 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 We can't hear you. I don't see you. It sucks so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the protests held after the murder um, of Ashgana um, were held on Istakal Avenue in Istanbul. The brutality of the murder especially caused um, public outcry with thousands of protesters taking to the streets across Turkey. 
In Taras, a mob tried to lynch the suspects that were arrested by the police. The funeral of Ashkana was attended by about 5,000 people, and women defied the imam in the funeral by attending the prayer together with men and carrying the coffin of Ashkana against religious tradition. Um, so there was all these protests, um, and then, like, like 15,000 people marched at, um, her university, um, protesters were black, um, some of them wearing clothes that were soaked in makeshift blood, um, demonstrations took, um, place in front of parliament, um, at labor unions, like, it just was, like, insane. Um, but the government uh, response was criticized by many Turks as too little too late. Um, the prime minister condemned the attack and announced that he this would prompt a widespread campaign against violence against women. He also announced that a youth center in Antella would be named after Ashkana, and um, Ka University decided to name their newly built psychology lab after her. Which is super sweet. That is sweet because he was a psychology student. Mm-hmm. Um, following the murder, a petition was started to prevent um, reduction of sentences being given to perpetrators of violence and murder against women. The petition garnered more than 700,000 signatures within 48 hours and went to become the most popular petition in Turkish history with more than a million signatures. Before the Turkish general election in June 2015, the People's Democrat Party and Republican Turkish Party promised to pass the Ashgan law after election, which the HDP co-leader um, Figen Yüksaganda signed. Um, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name. <laughs> the petition. Um, signing the petition herself and after the election um, members of parliament put forward to propose the law on July 6th. The proposal would remove the provision for reduction of sentences um, upon the grounds of good behavior and unjust provocation um, from article 102 of the Turkish Penal Code. Um, The proposal would also increase the penalty for child marriages and remove um, the provisions around consent of the child. Such proposals had already been put forward um, for three years, but according to um, CHP MP Alan Nazalika, um, were passed over whilst uh, the laws appeared to increase the freedom of women, but not actually condemning them and getting more to their houses. Um, so I guess they the courts just really didn't care because they didn't think it was going to um do it wasn't helping them so why help women um so another great little part about this case which i enjoy is while serving the life sentences at the high security prison in adana amit sophie um akadokan and his father were gunned down by an inmate in their own cell on April 11th, 2016. Wait, gunned down? Yeah. They had a gun in prison? Yeah, another prisoner had a gun. I don't know where they got it from, but they did. 
Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that before. No, I don't know if maybe like if a snuck guard through a guard or yeah. like someone else snuck it in or the security wasn't or they like, stole it from a guard. Yeah, quote unquote stole. I'm sure the guards did not like these two guys no. either. Um so they were both severely wounded and rushed to the hospital. Ahmet died and his father survived the attack. Um, the inmate who shot them um, was found guilty and he was transferred to another high security prison. Um, no cemetery. <laughs> I, like, I love this so much. No cemetery in Taurus or Ed- Ednana would accept his funeral. The crisis lasted five days, and finally, his corpse was taken out of the hospital morgue in a midnight undercover operation, masked as women, um, and were interned as an undisclosed burial site. Whoa. Yeah. Um, That's insane. Yeah. So, they basically, like, nobody knows where he's buried now, because, like, if they didn't they'd probably just like destroy his grave yeah or they dig him up and like dump him somewhere else yeah. wow yep so that is my case of ashgana aslan and wow. how the turkish people really have fought back against the inequality of women and are trying wow. to resolve it wow that case is insane i know right i can't believe how how much people despised these men which rightly so, of course, but it's just you often don't see a, a massive public reaction like that. It's crazy wow. to me because, um, like, this happens so frequently over there that, like, yeah, it's interesting that like this one case really like like tipped them over the edge, and it's still happening. I guess like it just hit a nerve, and it was like the final straw. And people are just like, enough is enough. Not to compare, but I guess it kind of had like the similar effects of George Floyd's murder um, last year. It caused huge outcry. This is happening so much and no one is doing anything about it and it has to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Good job. That was a really interesting case. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Megan, where are you taking us? I am taking you to Hong Kong today. Perfect. Yes. So I'm doing the murder of Poon Hu Wing. My sources today are from Wikipedia, of course, a BBC article by Cindy Su in 2019, the government of Hong Kong, special administrative region, the Taiwan government, SBS news article from 2019, the BBC and a medium.com article by Ron Byrne from 2019. Sounds like you've got some good sources this week. Oh yeah. It's it's truly a doozy. Okay, I'm ready. So I did cheat a little bit, Tegan, this week, and my murder does not actually take place in Hong Kong. However, you will find out why I cheated and chose this case uh, when we get into it. This murder has had extreme impacts. Like, this murder has changed Hong Kong society forever, so that's why I've picked it. So I'm doing the murder of Poon Hu Wing, as I said. Poon Hu Wing was a 20-year-old woman from Hong Kong. Some sources said she was 21, uh, but she was around 2021. In February of 2018, 
Poon Huing and her boyfriend, 19-year-old Chan Tong Kai, flew to Taipei, Taiwan for vacation. The couple had met about seven months beforehand, and Chan had set up the trip to Taiwan for Valentine's Day as Poon had gotten pregnant five weeks ago, and I guess they might have been celebrating. The couple spent their time in Taipei, I would assume, doing touristy things and having a good time. Uh, and on their last night, they stopped to pick up a suitcase at a night market on the way back to their hotel. The suitcase was big and hot pink, and my theory is that they went crazy with the souvenirs and had to get another bag to fly home, which I've done that before. <laughs> uh, hotel CCTV footage shows the couple going back to their room that night, but the next morning, the footage showed only the boyfriend, Chan, leaving with his suitcases. CCTV footage then shows Chan lugging his suitcases to the subway and getting on a train to the airport where he flew back to Hong Kong alone. Meanwhile, Poon's family was getting worried about her. Poon had told her mother that she was going to Taipei with a friend, but had not told her that she was going with Chan specifically. Her family had last heard from Poon at 1.21 a.m. when she sent a WhatsApp message to her mother that she would be back in Hong Kong the next day. Or like the day, um, did she, that night, I guess. Did her parents not know that she was in a relationship? That's what it sounded like. I'm not completely sure. Interesting. That must have been difficult for her, especially being pregnant. Yeah, yeah. So after hearing nothing from their daughter for over a week, Poon's parents reported her missing on March 5th, 2018 to the Hong Kong police. The police looked into her trip and were able to see what hotel she stayed at from her Hong Kong embarkation card and her Taiwan arrival card. So in, I think these are fairly common in East Asia. I can't remember if Canada does this or the US does this, but when you like leave a country and enter a country, you have to sign, like you have to fill out an immigration form that says like why you're going, where you're going, who you're going with, how long you're going to be there. Um, but you also have to do it on an, like when you leave Hong Kong, not just when you arrive in the country. So I think they're fairly common in East Asia. The Hong Kong police got in touch with Taiwan's Criminal Investigation Bureau, who were in turn able to get the CCTV footage from the hotel. After seeing the footage, which seemed to suggest Poon had been killed in her room by her boyfriend, Taiwanese police relayed this information back to police in Hong Kong. On March 13th, 2018, the Hong Kong police brought in Chan for questioning. During questioning, police discovered what had happened to Poon. Chan said that they had had a fight about how to pack their suitcases, but they eventually made up. After this, though, at around 2 a.m. on the morning of February 17th, they got into another argument, according to Chan. During this argument, Poon told Chan that he was not actually the father of her child. She had cheated on him with her ex-boyfriend back in December and had gotten pregnant. According to Chan, she then showed him a video of her having sex with someone else, and he got absolutely enraged. There is absolutely no way that that is true. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I Like, why, why would you show having... Like, that is so maniacal and manipulative and just, like, it does awful. Seem, yeah. It does seem really... Uh, like, a really strange thing to do if you're having a fight with someone... Like, you're uh, really trying to hurt that person because you yeah. you just say that, one, I cheated on you, two, you're not the father of our child that you were pre presumably excited about, and three, here's a video of me actually committing that. 
Yeah, so I, I don't know how much I believe him about that, but that's what he says. So after he um, allegedly saw the video, he got enraged. He shoved Poon forward and smashed her head on the wall. The two then fell to the floor, Poon struggling against Chan. Chan began to strangle her, and after about 10 minutes of her fighting back against him, Poon succumbed to being suffocated and died. Chan then shoved her body into the pink suitcase the couple had bought earlier that day. He packed up her belongings in, into plastic bags, which he would then dispose of the next morning. Chan checked out of the hotel, bringing Poon's body with him in the pink suitcase. He hopped on the subway, traveled 40 minutes on the busy train with Poon's remains, and got off at uh, Zhuwei Station. Here, along the trail by the Danshui River, which runs through the center of Taipei, Chan found some tall grass and bushes and pulled Poon out of the suitcase and left her hidden in the bushes. He then disposed of the suitcases elsewhere nearby, but not before he robbed Poon of her ATM card, her camera, and her phone. Over the next couple of weeks, he would, would withdraw over 2,500 US dollars from her bank account using her debit card, both in Taiwan that day and in Hong Kong in the following weeks. It's so stupid. Yeah. Like what? It's like that that just shows that like it wasn't a like uh in the moment hot-headed thing like you're then deciding to go above and beyond and like rob her as yeah. well like yeah like it could maybe understand taking her camera because it might have evidence on it but like if you're continuously withdrawing money out of her account after you've killed her like that's there's absolutely no guilt or shame yeah and also the thing that i kind of thought about was he took her phone and presumably i would guess that Hong Kong and police in Hong Kong would then look at the phone to see if his story is true about her having a video of her sleeping with another man but there is like absolutely no mention of that in any of the sources like again like so I don't know how true that is after Chan's confession Hong Kong police relayed this information to Taiwanese officials and the criminal investigation bureau in Taiwan conducted a search for Poon's body along the Dan Shui River after a three-hour search, they discovered Poon's body hidden in the bushes. Poon's body was decomposed and had no signs of injury as a result. Now, okay, this is where this case absolutely blows up and triggers a series of events that saw massive pro-democracy protests across Hong Kong for the past nearly two and a half to three years. Uh, if you didn't know, all of the protests in Hong Kong over an extradition bill uh, were from this murder, were triggered by this murder. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So that's why I picked this case, because it, it has literally changed Hong Kong society. So to understand what comes next, you need to understand the political atmosphere of this region. So I'm going to break it down very quickly. There's a lot of different factors that go into this political situation in China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. So I will discuss it briefly, but just know that it goes much d deeper than what I'm going to say. So Taiwan is considered an autonomous country by most of the world. However, it's not considered such by China. The government of China considers Taiwan to be a province within China that has separated and will need to return one day. In very simple terms, this is because the Republic of China government fled from China to the island of 
Taiwan in 1949 during a civil war against the Chinese Communist Party, forming what we now know as the country of Taiwan today. The Chinese Communist Party stayed on mainland China and formed what we now know as the People's Republic of China. Hong Kong, on the other hand, is formerly the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. That's a different story. In 1841, the United Kingdom colonized Hong Kong and the city-state remained under British rule for 156 years. In the 1980s, talks between the People's Republic of China and the British government began and ended with Hong Kong being returned to China on July 1st, 1997 as a special administrative region of China. The British conditions were so that Hong Kong citizens would keep their personal rights and freedoms for 50 years as they slowly transitioned to being officially part of the People's Republic of China in the year 2047. China and Hong Kong would have a one country, two systems approach to Hong Kong's democracy. And part of this one country, two systems approach is that criminals cannot be handed over to China from Hong Kong because they have two different legal systems. Over the past decade especially, however, the government, of China, the government of China has slowly been encroaching on these rights and freedoms of Hong Kong residents, leading to mass pro-democracy protests and the umbrella movement of 2014. Because of all this turmoil, there are no judicial cooperation agreements or extradition agreements between Taiwan and Hong Kong, or Taiwan and mainland China, or Hong Kong and mainland China. Back to Chan confessing to murdering Poon. With Poon's body now recovered and Chan's confessing to killing her, Hong Kong police arrested Chan, but not for murder. Because the murder happened in Taiwan, Hong Kong police had no jurisdiction there. They could not arrest Chan for a murder that happened on Taiwanese soil. They could only arrest Chan on a money laundering charge for the money he withdrew from Poon's bank account while back in Hong Kong. Chan was convicted for money laundering and sentenced to just over two years in jail in Hong Kong. On December 3rd, 2018, so about 10 months after Poon's murder, Taiwan issued an arrest warrant for Chan. They reached out to Hong Kong officials to try to get Chan sent to Taiwan for trial, but because there's no extradition treaty between the two jurisdictions, Hong Kong was not able to extradite Chan. Because of this, in February of 2019, a year after Poon's murder, the Hong Kong government drafted an extradition bill that would allow Hong Kong to extradite fugitives to not only Taiwan, but Macau, which is another special administrative region of China, and mainland China as well. However, both Taiwan and the people of Hong Kong were not happy about the bill as they feared it would allow the government of mainland China to exercise too much power over both of their regions. So from what I read, it seemed like Taiwan now no longer wanted Chan to come to Taiwan because they feared that this would somehow indicate to mainland China that Taiwan was not its own autonomous nation. From what I could infer from all of the stuff I read, it was quite confusing, so I've tried to summarize it as simple as possible. But from what I could tell, because Hong Kong is a part of China, the government of, the government of Hong Kong technically has to view Taiwan as part of China, not its own country. And because this new extradition agreement would be to China, Taiwan did not want anything to do with it because if they accepted this agreement, in the government of China's eyes, Taiwan would be accepting the fact that they are not an autonomous country. That makes sense. Yeah. So within the extradition agreement, 
Hong Kong had recognized Taiwan as a province of China and Taiwan was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. We are our own country. Okay. In Hong Kong, when citizens got wind of this extradition bill, Hong Kong literally erupted in protests. Hong Kong citizens were extremely concerned about the bill for a number of reasons, particularly because Hong Kong has its own government and its own laws. Citizens were worried that with this new extradition agreement, citizens could be extradited to mainland China from Hong Kong for something that might not even be considered a crime in Hong Kong. In addition, democracy advocates thought that this new bill would mean the end of the one country, two systems agreement. On June 9th, 2019, over a million protesters in Hong Kong hit the streets, demanding the government to withdraw the bill and for the chief executive, Carrie Lam, who proposed the bill, to resign. Ignoring the protesters, the Hong Kong government pushed forward with the second reading of the bill on June 12, 2019. This made protesters even angrier, and an estimated over 2 million people came out to protest again, with escalating protesting methods. Clashes between police and protesters ensued, with police deploying tear gas and rubber bullets. With each day of protests, the protesters' demands increased. Now, the protests were not only about the bill, but about police brutality, electoral reform, and pro-democracy. On June 15th, Carrie Lam announced the Hong Kong government would be suspending the extradition bill until further notice. Even so, the damage was already done and protesters conti- protests continued throughout the summer as the government had triggered something that united pro-democracy Hong Kongers. So over the summer of 2019, as Tegan, you probably remember seeing all the protests and I remember following along with the protests as well, Protests in Hong Kong grew increasingly violent and organized. In order to escape police brutality and arrest, protesters developed their own... Okay, so this is where I saw a video of this and it's actually insane at how organized these protests were and how smart they were. So listen to some of these protest tactics that developed during the protests. So protesters developed their own hand signals to quickly communicate through crowds of hundreds, even thousands of protesters. Some of these hand signals meant police, together, danger, run, helmet, umbrella, etc. These signals were used to communicate when someone needed medical attention or needed to warn others of the threat of police or something. So if someone needed a helmet, for example, that person would start making the helmet signal And then everyone else would start making the helmet signal. And then someone who had a helmet would pass it down the line to the person who needed the helmet. That's amazing. I remember seeing a video um, about them like moving barricades or something like that. And it was just like, yeah, yeah. In addition, protesters adopted Bruce Lee's famous saying of be water to elude the police. So protesters would appear and disappear quicker than the police could react. They would purchase metro tickets to not have their metro cards tracked with like tapping in and tapping out of the metro system. And this would allow for a quick escape. And many people often, like when you went to the subway or the metro in Hong Kong, you would buy two tickets, one for yourself and one you would stick on, like you'd tape onto the metro thing for protesters to quickly grab and escape the police. Protesters also would bring extra clothes to change into to not be identifiable as they escaped the protests. In addition, protesters would also leave like pre-packaged bags of clothes, snacks, and train tickets at metro stations for other protesters to pick up and quickly evade police. So I saw like photos of this. They're like H&M bags, 
that with like new clothes and they have the size written on the bag. So like small, medium, extra small. And there would be like pants in there, a shirt in there and like snacks, water and a metro ticket in the bag. And it would be placed like just around the train station. So a protester could grab it, take the train ticket, tap in, change once they're in the station and then escape in a completely new outfit with water and supplies. That's so amazing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sad that like yeah. every other protest in like America is not as organized as that. Yeah, well, I was reading an article that said that a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests in the US in June and July were adopting tactics from the Hong Kong protests. Like they were looking to see how to stay organized, how to evade police brutality. Like I saw a lot of things going around on social media saying just don't make your own sign. Uh, just get like a an old sign that you can just discard and it doesn't have any sort of like identifiable things on it. Wear all black, like wear their face masks. Like face masks were used in the protests by Hong Kongers um, to like stop facial tracking and facial recognition software. So yeah, it was like a lot of tactics used in the Black Lives Matter protest were taken from the Hong Kong protests. But yeah, if we can find a video of all of these different protests and like kind of like a, a a rundown so you can research it more after you listen to this podcast, um, we'll put it up on Instagram or our show notes and stuff. Yeah, I, I saw the video of them like be like water. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. I'm sure we'll be able to find a couple, um, like that. I also remember, <laughs> I know that this is probably so superficial, um, but I remember this, like, caused a whole bunch of issues with the Victoria's Secret fashion show, because, um, they did it in China one year, and, like, all of the m- music artists had, like, put up things, like, supporting Hong Kong, and so China wouldn't let them in. Yeah, it's it's quite scary when you think about it, and it gets even scarier, like, as I will go down this story. Great. <sighs> yep. So, okay. On September 4th, 2019, after 13 weeks of protests, the Hong Kong government announced the bill would be withdrawn, and a month later, on October 23rd, 2019, the extradition bill was formally cancelled and withdrawn, but protests continued and still continue to this day. The day the bill was withdrawn, on October 23rd, Chan was released from prison after his sentence was reduced because it was his first offense. A couple days beforehand, he had written to Hong Kong authorities saying he was willing to go to Taiwan and be tried for Poon's murder. The day of his release, Chan formally apologized to both Poon's parents and Hong Kong society. Yeah, he literally create helped create, like, this massive issue. And not to say that this was not already an issue in Hong Kong. Like, there were protests before, like, in 2014, there was this protest in the rise of the, like, Umbrella Movement, um, which we can, like, put information up about. But it was, like, pro-democracy and, like, anti-communist, I guess, as well. So this was already an underlying issue, but it was just, like, the fuse that needed, that was needed to trigger the bomb. Um, So because of the sensitivity of the case, Chan requested police protection until he could travel to Taiwan to serve trial. After some back and forth on the issue, Taiwan agreed to have Chan willingly come to Taiwan to serve trial, but 
only if he was escorted by Taiwanese officials from Hong Kong to Taiwan. However, Hong Kong rejected this offer, saying that Taiwanese police have no jurisdiction in Hong Kong. The issue was exasperated, exacerbated by the fact that Taiwan had presidential elections coming up in March 2020, so the serving president was up for re-election and he did not, or she, I think, I think it was a woman, she didn't want to do anything with this case that might trigger protests in Taiwan over this issue because 80% of Taiwan society and Taiwanese people do not want anything to do with China. They do not want to be considered Chinese. They consider themselves an autonomous country and do not want to return to China at all. Yeah, I have a couple friends who, if you say they're Chinese, they'll get very adamant over the fact that they're Taiwanese and that is an era that you need to resolve immediately. Yeah. So because because this issue was exacerbated um, by the upcoming Taiwan elections, ultimately Chan agreed to wait until the presidential elections were concluded before making any further arrangements to go to Taiwan for trial. However, as we are all aware, all well aware, the COVID-19 pandemic hit in early 2020, and as a result of this, Taiwan closed its borders to all non-residents, meaning Chan still remains in Hong Kong as a free man under police protection. So, finally, before I wrap up, I'll quickly sweet speak about the national security law that was enacted in June 2020. So, largely as a result of these mass pro-democracy protests triggered by Poon's murder and the proposed extradition treaty, um, the government of China like did not like these protests, as you might assume. So they stepped in to build a security law framework in Hong Kong. The features of this national security law were kept secret until it was passed. My assumption is that they did not want what happened with the extradition treaty to happen again because of this extradition, uh, or sorry, because of this new national security law. So they kept it secret rather than having it out for public re- review like the extradition bill was. So the features of this national security law were kept secret until it was passed, um, and the new law makes it illegal for Hong Kong and residents of Hong Kong to secede from China, it makes it illegal to undermine any of China's authority, and makes it illegal to collude with foreign or outside groups, among other things. So these laws also apply to non-permanent residents and people from outside of Hong Kong. This national security law, while not officially doing so, essentially ends the one country, two systems model of governance in Hong Kong, as China can now enforce its own laws on Hong Kong jurisdiction. So you can now be sentenced to life in prison in Hong Kong for something as small as posting an opinion on Facebook. So even if you or I went to Hong Kong and we had some uh, opinion posted on our Facebook that was classified as being illegal by these laws a week ago to jail for for life that's actually insane i didn't think about how there's like that that could like even happen and how like their laws are so much more stricter that like even if you're not on their their land per se because it's hong kong that like it they can do that that's really scary but that's like yeah. insane that like they're able to do that. Yeah. So it's kind of like um what you were saying about the Victoria's Secret fashion show having all these celebrities post in support of the Hong Kong protests and not being allowed into China 
if they did that and went to Hong Kong, they could be arrested for it. As you can see, the murder of Poon Hu-wing has had astronomical impacts on Hong Kong society. Not only did Poon lose her life, but her death was the catalyst for months of violent pro-democracy protests and so much of the civil unrest in Hong Kong that we have witnessed for the past nearly two and a half years. And that is the murder of Poon Hu-wing. Wow, Megan, that was amazing. That must have been a really hard case to cover. Yeah, it was hard finding details about Poon because so much of her her murder has been overshadowed by the protest. So I kind of wanted to like talk about her as well. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, it's insane like how much that has impacted Hong Kong. Like literally has changed Hong Kong forever. Yeah, no, that's actually crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, it was very tough to research um, and tough to find like a simple way of explaining it because it's so complicated. Yeah, years and years and years of turmoil between multiple different areas and trying to (laughs) explain it in a brief (laughs) summary. Yeah, hopefully we didn't um, (laughs) offend anyone. (laughs) I'm sure Uh, you did not. And if anything, you've helped explain things to more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Mm -hmm. That was a long episode. Timothy has decided to um, join me on my lap and be a little cuddle bug. Let's see if I can get Tim purring. Yeah. Let me go see if my puppy is home. Okay. Oh, she is home. Let me get her, and then I can have a puppy on my lap. Yay. Okay. Bentley, look. Ah. Oh. Can you sniff the microphone again? Oh, you have nice kisses. Oh, it's a good girl, Bentley. Hi, Bentley. Tim looks so, like, unbothered right now. Us and our podcast pets. I know. <laughs> oh, I have a Harry Styles update. Um, it's not necessarily about him, but I followed this Instagram account and they were doing like ship or dip like polls or whatever. And it was like, so like ship, it's like, oh, you like this couple together. Dip, it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm dipping out. I don't like this couple together. Oh, you can hear her chewing on a box. <laughs> but it showed a photo of Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde and it was like 56% dip like and all of the other ones were shipping the couples together Harry deserves to be with me not somebody else <laughs> that's why everyone's saying dip he know they know that his true love is me is Tegan yeah <laughs> if you can hear that scraping in the background that is Bentley chewing on a box that I have in my room cardboard box because that's she's better like than toys. It with her feet. If you hear purring, it's Tim coming from my lap. Because he's getting cuddles right now. We've got some, some news, podcast news. Um, we probably, you'll probably hear Tim on the podcast maybe one more time. Um, because uh, I'm moving, and Tim isn't coming with me because his, I'm not his mom. So we'll Aww. still have Milo, but Milo isn't as cuddly and doesn't like as much, uh, he doesn't make as much noise, but Aww. 
Yeah. So. But the the fun thing is I'm moving to a brand new apartment and it's super cute and much better to record in, I'm sure. Yeah. You're, you'll be higher up so less traffic noises. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. thicker windows so that the noise doesn't travel through. Nice. That's so exciting. I can't wait to come visit after... Uh, this pandemic is over? I know. Hopefully that will be sooner rather than If it later. ever ends. If it ever ends. Mm-hmm. Um, should we cut our chit-chat short and pull countries? I think so. Not much, not much going on. I have a puppy I need to attend to soon before she gets bored with the box <laughs> and moves on to something that's uh, more... Valuable. Uh, like a cord for my laptop. Um, (laughs) okay, Tegan, are you ready to hear where you're going? I am. So, you are going to Norway. Ooh. Okay, I am going to Bhutan. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the puppy and kitty uh, features that we had. I hope you learned a lot about Turkey and Hong Kong um yeah follow us on instagram at destination murder pod and we'll be in your ear holes next week i guess yeah gulay gulay as they say in turkey uh bye bye as they say in hong kong which is apparently fun story it's like a cantonese adoption of the english goodbye like bye bye yeah. but they say it with this different accent bye bye um yeah gulay gulay, gulay, gulay. see you next bye-bye. week Have a good week. Adios, amigos.